This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME10. Hi, this is X, and this is The Candid Frame. Well, first off, I want to offer an apology for last week's episode with Holly and Mark Jansen. Unfortunately, the episode was released with the introduction for the photographer from the previous week, James Carbone. So if you download that episode, you may have been a little bit confused. But we've remedied the issue and we've taken care of the file. So now if you re-download or download the uh, episode 205 with Mark and Holly Jensen, you'll get the correct introduction for the episode. So if you haven't already, please, please do that. So you can make sure that you have pristine copies of all the episodes that we offer. Now, we're still in the midst of doing a little bit of a fundraiser. I'm working on releasing an app for both the Android and the iOS operating systems. And I want to make those available for free, as you may have heard in an announcement that I released during the end of the middle of the week. Now, I have 10 people who've already committed monies towards this goal, and I just need 14 more people, which will help me reach the goal of having 24 people to donate at least $10. And and what this is going to allow me to do to uh, provide this for free to all listeners, and I just want to offset the cost for a while until I'm able to earn enough revenue so that the show is finally paying for itself. So if you're listening now and you haven't already, please Click on the donate buttons on the site and on this post and just commit $10, this one-time $10 donation, and it will help me reach this goal of providing this really valuable uh, resource to the listeners who are listening not only now, but maybe listening to the show in, in the future. Now, today's guest is a photographer who I've been following for a while. His name is David Wells. He's a former photojournalist, and as of late, he's been working a lot on teaching photography as well as working on on a large number of personal projects and, and doing some commercial work. And I've enjoyed his videos and his website, which he calls The Wells Point. I was particularly drawn to, to, to his videos, which are usually very short, but they always provide some really insightful and valuable information in terms of not only how you can take pictures, but also how to, to edit your photographs. And uh, I've always had a fondness for his work, and I finally got around to interviewing him for for the show. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation, because like many of the guests that I have on the show, I'm always looking for someone who can provide me personally some sort of insight into what I do. And David more than fits that bill. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Well, David, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's very nice to be here. I've been looking forward to talking to you for a while. Yeah, I've, I've been following your work for, for quite a while. I think I, I got turned on to you by the YouTube videos, the, the podcast that you were that you were releasing. Mm. And then I started... Uh, subscri- probably through the Wells Point, my educational yes. website. Right, yes. exactly. Right. So it's it's been, uh, been neat to see the work that you've been doing. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about a good amount of that. Uh, good. One of the, th- the couple of things I want to talk to you about, and 
in the, the, the two things that I think that, that you talk about a lot and that you, you teach a lot about is about light. And the other thing is about the photo essay in terms of being able to tell a story. And I think those are two elements that are really valuable to any photographer, regardless what genre they're in. And when I was reading up about you, I saw that W. Eugene Smith was uh, an inspiration <laughs> for you. And I can't think of a, of a better photographer who sort of combines uh, sensitivity to light and has an amazing way of telling telling a story. Why is... Why is W. Eugene Smith such an uh, inspiration for you? And what do you think it is about his work that's really sort of driven what you've done with the camera? Oh, um, I, I think it's because, as you said a minute ago, his work was the best of it was at the intersection of a photo essay, which not only is a photo story like a lot of people think it is, but also a great photo essay has a point of view, which is the next step beyond just being a photo story. And his work always had a point of view. He was really comfortable with that idea of not just telling a story, but really saying, this is what I think matters. This is my point of view. And then, of course, if you think about stories like uh, Spanish Village um, and some of his other stories, he used light, especially in the case of the Spanish Village story, to make the place where he was photographing in Spain feel as bleak and oppressive as it was and as he wanted to come across from his point of view. Yeah. And why don't you tell people a little about that, that photo essay? Because not everyone may not be familiar with it. This it is was during the reign of uh, Francisco Franco. Right. It was during the reign of Francisco Franco. And what he was trying to show that was that in the sort of smaller villages of Spain, how bleak life was, how the Guardia Seville really controlled things, and how sort of Spain had gotten locked in this moment of time. Uh, because of Franco. And so, of course, it was done in the time period, it was done. Most publications like Life Magazine, who he was working for, were using black and white. But he used black and white and, for example, did a number of the, the shots in the story are actually in the kind of bad midday light that we as photographers normally stay away from. But I th I've always thought that he used that intentionally to make that part of Spain feel as harsh and ugly and bleak as he could. And he sort of went against the rule that we sort of live by as photographers, but he used it to his advantage. Yeah, because he's one of those photographers that really sort of expressed how he felt about mm. what he was seeing. Mm -hmm. And that came across in the photograph. If if anyone ever reads uh, a great biography that was written uh, about him uh, in, of Shadow and Substance. The Jim Hughes book. Right. Yes. Which is one of the best biographies of any photographer that's ever been written. But you really get a sense of Smith's passion, obsession. <laughs> um, the extremist to which he would go to make 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 a photograph, but you know, though I don't, I wouldn't recommend uh, his path to anyone <laughs> who wants to maintain their health. I, I think that a good takeaway is is just the fact of how important it becomes to really have a point of view, to have something to say with a camera other than just making a pretty f photograph. And I think that in, in a lot of that your work, that you've done that and. How important do you think it is for a photographer to get to that point where they start thinking rather than the individual photograph about making a good individual photograph, but really trying to put together a series of images to, to, tell, a, to tell a story or put together a narrative of some sort? Well, I think that's very important, and obviously I, I teach that and I practice that. And in today's market, which I know is a, sort of a, always a background issue for anybody who listens to these, in today's market, the question always is how can one photographer differentiate himself from the other or herself from the other? And the ability to not just do individual photographs but also to be able to put a narrative together and then to put together a narrative with a passion and a point of view is the kind of thing that a lot of the editors that I work for 
look for because they know that they can get somebody who can do one or two photos, but they can't always find somebody who can put something together, give it a strong point of view, and really give it kind of a personality for either the publication or the personality of the author or a little bit of both. So when you started doing this, you were first in a newspaper photographer and then a magazine photographer. What was the difference in terms of telling a photo story between working for a newspaper and working for a magazine, or was there any difference at all? Oh, there's a tremendous difference. Part of it, it would have to be sort of, um, I don't know what the word is, caveated, if you will, by saying that today's newspaper slash magazine market is very different than the one I started out in. But the one I started out in, the, the good things about newspapers is that you had a lot of things you had to do every day and a lot of pressure and you had to work fast and you had to get the story across well and you got a lot of really harsh, even sometimes brutal feedback from your peers in the darkroom and then you went out and did the same thing the next day. And that also was the downside, the fact that there wasn't a long time curve. Um, in magazines, you got the longer time curve, but you didn't get nearly as often a publication. And the best magazines that I worked for were the ones where – they understood the idea of giving me a long time curve to do the work, but also trusting my authorship, my point of view, and my storytelling skills. And now with the whole market changing, a lot of these stories tend to be largely personal work. It's very rare that you get assigned stuff. So tell us about how these bodies of work manifest themselves now in your career. Well, the, the interesting thing about the current project I'm working on, um, Foreclosed Dreams, photographing inside foreclosed houses after the foreclosure and before the houses are cleaned up, is that it hasn't been published as a conventional magazine story like I used to do, but it has been exhibited a lot. I've been able to turn it into a number of exhibitions, a number of portfolios in uh, literary journals and poetry magazines and things like that, and a number of photography magazine and other kind of magazine articles. So I'm still getting the work out there, but the sort of old school get it in life magazine, 10 pages kind of thing, or what I did more recently was the uh, eight or 10 pages in the Sunday magazine market that I used to be in. That's long gone. So the trick now is to find these other markets, which are a mix of online on the exhibition gallery walls, um, prints and alternative publications. Tell us a little more about this foreclosure project because you've been working on it for several years now and, and it's been really interesting to, to follow that on your, on your website and in your videos. But uh, tell people what you've been doing because a lot of other people have tried to photograph this particular subject of the economic downturn that we've been suffering from for the last seven or eight years. But you've been taking a very unique take on it. I mean I've been trying to, to come at it from a different point of view. Basically what I do is I photograph inside foreclosed houses right after the foreclosure and before they're cleaned up to be put back on the market. And at that brief window of time is when you can see what I think of as the ghosts of the people who used to be in there. Sometimes it's about what people leave behind either because they've been evicted or they leave behind because they just decided to leave it in the process of moving or some other situation comes oftentimes where people have not fully mentally prepared or economically prepared and so they're out and the stuff that's left behind gives you some sense of what life used to be like in those houses. And um, those are, for lack of a better term, the best houses because when I go in those, I really have a strong feeling of, oh, this used to be these kinds of people. These were the things that were important to them. In a house I photographed recently in Alabama, um, I found something I've been looking for in a number of houses, which is the markings on the uh, closet door where it has a kid's name and it has the year and how tall they were. And I photographed that in a few houses, but this particular house in Alabama, it was just really – you really got a sense of that this was this particular family's point of pride and joy to mark these kids' height every year or every two years. And 
Those are the kinds of things that people leave behind when their lives are foreclosed upon, when they're foreclosed out of their houses. Yeah, because it's, it's one thing to see an exterior of a house that, that's, you know, been, you know, been emptied, that's gone into foreclosure. It's one thing to actually walk into the house and see remnants of those people's lives and, and to sort of imagine who they were. One of the most heartbreaking images was of, uh, that you took was of a series of trophies where they mm. didn't take the trophies, but they just took the plates. Right themselves. That was actually in Stockton, California, north of where you are, and that's exactly what happened. They could only, I guess, had the room when they moved to take the, the, the plates that indicated this young man who must have been a teenager probably, who was some kind of karate champion, and all they took were the plates indicating what he'd won, but all these dozens of trophies were left behind. And as sad as it was just for me to see this, I tried to put my, myself in this poor kid's place and thought it would have been even harder. When you started doing this series, what were you thinking in terms of what you were hoping that these images would express or convey? And then over time, how has that changed? Well, the educator in me always wants to reach for what I call a teachable moment. This is a classical teachable moment, if I may, in that I actually started to do the project with a very different approach. And after working on it for a couple months, I realized the first approach I had wasn't going to work. I actually started photographing the people who cleaned up the foreclosed houses, because I thought, what must it be like mentally to go through the sort of wreckage of other people's lives? And I really realized very quickly that it's, it's difficult on these guys, but visually, and it is mostly guys, visually it's just some guys going through other people's houses and wreckage. And they talk a lot, and it probably would make a great video, but it's not a great set of still photographs. But the stuff they were going through caught my attention and I started realizing it wasn't about the guys. It was about the stuff that they had to go through that the families had to leave behind. And I mentioned that because virtually all of my projects, as much as I research them and I plan them and I have this idea, a good photo essay always starts out as one thing and then when you get out in the field and you execute it, it usually changes. In fact, if it doesn't change, you're probably not working hard enough. Hmm. When you started working these houses and you started finding these different things, you know, sometimes you're not dealing with with much because for for the large part there's maybe some furniture there's a lot of trash there's a lot of maybe damage to the house that's there and when you start photographing these houses there can you can fall into a point of maybe sort of repeating yourself in terms of imagery mm -hmm. so how would you get yourself into a mindset where you weren't just making the same images over and over again but trying to find a different way to make a photograph that told a different facet of that of that story well, there were a couple of things that I was trying – I'm continually trying to this day to do to keep the work sort of growing and different. And one thing is that when I walk into every house, I walk through every single room as quickly as I can just to get a sort of a survey because a lot of times either the people who are doing the cleaning are right behind me or there's a realtor involved or there's some sort of deadline pressure basically. I usually don't have all day in these places. Um, and so I walk in, I do a quick survey and so – I think part of what happens is this mental inventory of, oh, I've seen this, oh, I've seen that. Hmm, that's something I've not seen before. Or in the case of the markings on the door frame, which I'd seen a few times before, but I'd never satisfactorily photographed. I looked at this one in Alabama and said, that is so much better than what I've got to date. Then I'm going to spend some time on this. But you're absolutely correct. There's a lot of things that I see, and not to diminish these people's experiences at all, but I've seen them over and over. So the trick is to say to myself, to go through that mental hard drive of, of images that I have in my head and say, I've done that, I've done that. Okay, now this is new. This is where I'm going to spend my half an hour or hour in this house. 
So what's the reaction that you've received from people who've seen the the images either in print or if you've, you've shown them uh, uh, prints? Um, I mean, a lot of people, I think, are moved by it. Some people are moved by different images. I think, not surprisingly, a lot of people put their own ideas about, and this is what I want, by the way. I think they put their own ideas about family, home, childhood, their own childhood, their own house, possible experiences they may have had with getting near or, in fact, being foreclosed upon. They put their own experience into it, and I can often sense that by which images in a given set of images they gravitate to because um, some images are sort of everybody gravitates to. But every now and then I'll talk to somebody, and there's one or two images that they really gravitate to that are different than most other people. And if I talk to them long enough, I can usually find out that there's some family history or a relative or something that makes them put their own emotional experience into that image. And as a photographer, that's what we always want to do. We want people to look at the work and put themselves into it emotionally, as well as our own emotion being in it. Yeah. A big part of any project is, is your ability to, to edit. Mm-hmm. And especially with a project that you're working over a period of years, rather than just, say, a few, a few days, it can be a, a, a big challenge. So I'm curious to hear about your editing process. You have a, a video that I've seen before where you were teaching a workshop in India in which you helped students to edit by actually having prints on a table that you were moving around. It was great to have a visual example of someone else doing that because I talk a lot about doing that and how important it is to have that sort of physical contact with the prints. But in terms of your own work, specifically this this work, is that part of your process or is that happen towards later on towards the end of it or even from the beginning you're working with prints like that in order to sort of have a have a sense of what's working and what's not working my editing process is actually pretty complex in in a good way a lot of times what i will do especially if i'm in a multi multi-day shoot where i have more than one set of houses um, to be photographed or you know, a particular trip to a certain area i will make an edit at night of a given day's shoot And I'll send out a PDF proof sheet to a list of 10 of my friends who do what I call instant editing. And they'll see these like 20 or 30 or 40 images on a proof sheet. And they'll just send me back some real quick feedback. But usually within 24 hours, I've had six or seven people look at those pictures. And I know that what I'm doing is working well on that take or it's starting to get repetitive or I've kind of missed the message or something. And so then I'll take the selects that these people have picked I'll put them into a larger pile, and I carry around, whenever I'm visiting friends and photographers I respect, I'm carrying around a stack of about 100 four by 6 prints, and I actually hand these to my friends, and I say, can you pick out the top 15? And they do that exact editing that's in the podcast you talked about, where they'll take 100 prints and they'll chop it down to, say, 15, and then I turn them over, and on the back I'll write their initials. And after a while, it becomes very clear which images work for a lot of people and which images don't work for anybody. And so the ones that don't work for anybody after a certain point in time, they drop out of the set and then new images get mixed into the set. And so it's both continually growing but also getting tighter and tighter, especially when I keep track of the different people's initials in the back of the the prints. Wow, that's really interesting. Because getting other people's perspectives like that is something that I haven't considered to the extent that you're doing it. It's an interesting question because my wife's a fine art photographer and you actually had interviewed her earlier in this series and she's not very big on other people's input and that's not a a value judgment on my part or a competitive issue between her and I but I think since she works in the fine art realm, it's a lot about sort of the idea that she wants to get across and since my stuff is fundamentally for 
publication to a large degree and exhibition to a secondary degree, I really want to make sure the people who look at the work get it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm comfortable crowdsourcing my editing. In fact, I'm really excited because I didn't used to be able to crowdsource my editing in the bad old days of slides and prints in the same way that now I can crowdsource my editing. Let's talk about choosing people like that, because a lot of people are sort of hesitant about sharing their work. And I know that you introduce a lot of these concepts to to your students. What do you tell them in terms of if they want to go out there and they want to do something similar to you in terms of who do you choose to give your work to to get that kind of feedback? Because not everybody should. Right. I guess the first thing I tell them is literally we do an, we do a little introduction exercise in the beginning of every workshop that I teach, and the idea is that each student in the workshop meets somebody they don't know and then interviews them for a few minutes and then introduces this stranger who's now their new friend to the rest of the group. And at the end of that 10-minute process, each student now knows somebody relatively well that they didn't know 10 minutes earlier. So the first thing I say at the end of the class when we're talking about this exact question, because every class ends with this question of what are they going to do next, I say the first person to show your work to is the person you interviewed before because you now know this person rel- I mean, relatively well and you've been with them for a certain number of days. You have a comfort level and you trust them. And so the first person I suggest they look to is that person. The next person I suggest they look to is anybody else in the class because we just spent you know three, five, seven, ten days together and you've got a sense of what people like, if they're trustworthy, if they can give trust, if they can share – those are the next people to go to because in both cases, you're just looking for somebody who can look at the work without having the emotional attachment to it that we all have when we make our photographs. And the problem is our spouses, partners, husbands, wives, moms, dads, they have an emotional attachment to us, which is almost as bad as the emotional attachment we have to the image. So you still need somebody who's outside of that sort of emotionally attached realm. Um, occasionally, there are people in the workshops who I would not recommend people share with, but I think People are pretty clearly know that. There are people who edit online. I mean, I edit for money all the time for people. I know you do as well. Um, I think that the trick there for any student is to find somebody who knows how to give feedback in a way that's simultaneously critical, but at the same time sort of emotionally nourishing and nurturing underneath. Because it's not hard to tear somebody to shreds, and it's not hard to tell somebody you love them. But it's really a balancing act to give them just enough to make them want to really work harder and get better without tearing them down so much that they you know, they run home screaming. Do you find that even with all your experience in this methodology that you come, have come up with, that you still at times find it difficult to kill your darlings? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, Robert Gilka, I believe, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He just passed away recently. Yeah. Yes, I still – there are many times I kill my darlings. I have trouble killing my darlings. I will say what I really love about the instant editing is that my darlings are usually dead within 72 hours because those – not all 10 people write me back within three or four days, but at least half of them usually do because people are traveling and busy and this and that. But I know right away which ones – don't work. And probably what's more impressive for me is I know which ones I didn't think that much of, but my editing group thinks really highly of. Those are actually, to me, the ones that are almost more important than killing my darlings. But I'll put a picture out there to these 10 people. And I was sort of on the borderline of keeping it in, dumping it out. And they all go for it. And it reminds me that I also have the opposite emotional experience. Like sometimes I don't get that attached to a picture, but there's something that I put in there that these people looked at and they immediately got. Yeah. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. 
Now, as part of my research for finding ways to expand the reach of the podcast, I've discovered that most people are discovering sites and podcasts through their tablets and their smartphones rather than their computers. So it becomes increasingly important that your website look good on not just that large computer screen sitting at your desk, but literally in the palm of someone's hand. And the great thing about Squarespace is that their templates are designed to be optimized regardless of what kind of device they're being viewed on. So if you design your website and it looks beautiful on your desktop, it's also gonna look good on a tablet and it's gonna look good on a, on a phone because all your images are resized to look their best. But you can find out for yourself how good your website can look on absolutely any platform by just taking advantage of the 14-day free trial. And to do that, there's no credit card needed. You can just start building your website today. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME10 to get 10% off and show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Well, one of the great things about your images is is the way that you use light. And I'm always impressed by photographers who are able to tell a story, create narrative with their images, but also effectively use light at the same time. I interviewed uh, Will Bill Allard from National mm. Geographic, mm -hmm. and I think he's probably one of the shining examples of a modern photographer who who does that so amazingly well. I never get tired of taking a look at his, at his photographs. And speak to that idea in terms of using light and color, not just for the sake of creating an image that looks nice, but that uses light and color to convey something. Um, let me see if I can answer that question. I, I know what you mean, and I'm going to give you probably less than a full answer in the sense that that's kind of always what I've been passionate about because everybody says photography means writing with light, which it certainly is. But I've always uh, attributed to growing up in Southern California, actually, it, growing up with the quality of light out there and then having worked as a newspaper photographer out there and briefly as a magazine photographer to really coming of age as a photographer, looking at what I still think is some of the most amazing light I've ever experienced, especially the as you were saying before, the winters in Los Angeles, the light to me is just magical. And so when I'm out photographing, I'm always looking for that kind of thing. And even in the Foreclosed Dreams Project, it's a lot about going into these rooms and saying, you know, the, the light in that room is flat. Ooh, the light in that room is amazing. And now that the light is amazing, let's also hope that maybe we can get this detail that will make the story um, spectacular. There are plenty of rooms that I walk into in some of these houses where the detail is spectacular, the light is dreadful, or the light's great, but there's nothing to, to portray. And then it's just the sort of luck of the draw and the luck of my sensitivity to uh, have the two of them come together. The one other thing, probably directly in the foreclosure thing, is that if I am in a house as long as an hour or two, I really try hard at the end to circle back because sometimes the light will have changed yeah. in the space in the hour that I was in there. And sometimes the second pass around will be when the light is better. I just kind of – that's the, sort of the way I see the world. I know that's not very helpful, but I really try to sort of stick to that idea of all things being equal. A photograph is going to be better if I can make the light more compelling than just using flat light. 
And, and you're primarily working with available light. You're not working much with, with flash or introducing strobe for the most part, except maybe as, as a little fill. Is that right? Well, for my magazine work, I do a lot of uh, flash work, most of which you can't see because I'm doing good flash fill where the flash is turned down so far that you don't notice it. But that's the publication work that I do. But the Foreclosed Dreams, for example, is completely available light. The one thing I would say about the Foreclosed Dreams that probably does go to what you're talking about is that probably 60% of those images are made on a tabletop tripod. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And I believe I even uh, talk about it in a couple, couple of the podcasts on the project. I use a tabletop tripod because I can't really carry around a big tripod all the time when I'm working. But I can almost always find a wall or a bookcase or something to rest my tabletop tripod on so I can do the kind of really long exposure in rooms that otherwise might be sort of grim and dark. But if you give them a one-second or two-second exposure – that little beam of light that's coming through that one open door actually turns into a really magical beam of light. Yeah, I think I saw a video where you were using, uh, you were bracing the, that little tabletop tripod against a door frame. Exactly. Right, yes, right. That's the and, kind of thing I do a lot of. And when I saw that, I said, well, that's really interesting because by working without the tripod, you're creating a limitation for yourself that can end up result in you making kind, the kinds of photographs that you wouldn't make if you had a normal, you know, a normal sized tripod that you were working with. It makes me be more creative. It also, I think, gets me down to the, closer to the walls and the surfaces and the floors and the bookcases and stuff mm -hmm. because I have this limited tabletop tripod. And the more I do this, the more I actually think that's not a bad thing because those are the places where the marks are and the toys are left behind and the snapshots rest and stuff like that. When you're teaching your workshops or you're working with someone who's working with stuff, um, how important do you think limitations and restrictions that a photographer puts on themselves allow them to see and, and create more interesting photographs. Cause one of the things that, you know, I've discovered over, over years is that all this equipment, I don't need it. And it can sometimes hamper my ability to be able to do what I need to do. I, I mean, I largely agree. Sometimes I find students believe that a gear will resolve a problem that in fact the thinking will resolve much better probably the biggest thing and i joke about this in my class but i really half believe it tr is true is that i s joke that my teaching assistant will have a hammer and a nail and when a student gets to a good spot they'll nail <laughs> a they'll drive a nail through the person's foot so they don't move because the biggest single thing most uh, young aspiring student beginning photographers do is they move too fast. They don't stay in one place. They don't trust their judgment that that's a good situation. They don't take more than three pictures, look at the back, and then really work it. And I certainly agree, but but my bigger thing would be to some way that I can force them to slow down and to take a deep breath and all the things that a lot of great photographers say. Joe Myrowitz once said, I think something like, wait a minute, you'll get a gift. And that's another thing that I'm always telling them because they just – they feel like they have to photograph everything and I'd rather come away from a situation with one great photograph than 50 snapshots and that's kind of what you're saying. My, my take is ever so slightly different but fundamentally the same thing. They do get caught up in gear a lot and they don't always have the patience that they should. You've photographed abroad. You've photographed a lot in, in India. So how do you take that sensibility in terms of slowing down, taking your time, really observing when you're in a place in India which is just – it seems like the energy in the air is explosive, you know, with, with the wash of color and the people and, you know, and it's like, I, I, I can imagine that if I ever get there, that I'll be so overwhelmed for the first yeah. couple of days that I'll, I won't know what to point a camera at. So, you know, you're in an abandoned house 
it's very quiet. You can, it's conducive to being in that space. But when you're in an environment like in India, where it's the exact opposite, talk about being able to get yourself into that mindset. I can. A couple things that, that I encourage my students to do is the first couple of days they just machine gun everything in sight because that's the urge that they have to get through. But I do keep pushing them and I'm pushing myself as well to say, all right, there's, if I come away from today with two or three great photos, that's going to be a productive day. And so it's very much about what I call staying on message, which is only saying, okay, today I'm only going to be photographing – the buildings and the arches, and I'm not going to be photographing the spice markets. I'm not going to be photographing the incense because though that's cool, I'm going to get off message. And every third person who comes up and starts talking to me, though, I'm going to be nice to them. I'm not going to actually start doing street portraits because I could get distracted again. And and I'm pretty good because I do this so much for work at staying on message. And I try really hard to get the students to stay on message because they learn more. You know this as an accomplished photographer. They learn more when they put themselves into something and spend half an hour or an hour on an idea than they do spending a minute on 60 different ideas. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I find that even, even with my own work, that if I just, if I find an interesting subject and I decide to linger there for a half an hour, an hour or yeah. two hours, that that ends up producing some of the more interesting images because I, like you said, slow down and I become much more observant. I start thinking about, you know, what is it about this scene that interests me? And then I find myself making different choices to make a photograph, getting physically closer, pulling back, using a very wide angle lens, working with the shadow or, or, or with the light coming in through a window. When I allow myself to linger, then everything sort of opens up where if I'm just grabbing a single shot, that initial shot may not be the best shot that I could possibly make of the scene. I mean, that's certainly true to carry it one step further. I think the other thing you also do, I certainly do, is you get much more attuned to the place, the people, the activity. And I particularly find, especially in India, is after just five minutes of staying in one place, you start to see the rhythm of how people are going to walk through the space and the activity in the market that repeats over and over. And so after 10 or 15 minutes, I've kind of got it figured out. So I know, okay, this is the place to be to get the most activity and not to be in the way and everybody will be nicer to me all rolled in one. And I'll know which is a nice person, who's the sort of crazy person. And all of that just comes from planting myself in one place and being open to everything around me. Well, you know, when you take a look at your, your work, um, the, the light in some of these locations is just, just, just beautiful. But, you know, that light mm-hmm. isn't available all the time. So when you're going to a destination on your own, not necessarily doing, uh, doing a workshop, how do you sort of plan your day so that you can be – so that you can take advantage of both a good location with good subject matter and, and, and good light? Or, and what do you do during the middle of the day when that light is less than ideal? <laughs> Um, well, I think one of the podcasts you probably saw on The Wells Point is actually called The Wells Point. And what it's about is about how I determine what I consider the good time of day in terms of the best light to photograph in the morning and the evening. And I literally am out photographing from before sunrise until the sun reaches a Wells Point and then in the afternoon from the Wells Point into the twilight and then at night because I like photographing at night as well. In the middle of the day, in the best of all worlds, I'm back at the hotel if I can, downloading, um, doing interior shots, detail shots, uh, stuff inside the buildings, stuff through archways where I'm looking out into the bright light, using the high contrast to create silhouettes. In the best of all worlds, I've looked either on a map 
or a guidebook or something. So I have some sense that this part of town, for example, is going to be best in the morning and that part of town is going to be best in the evening. And I'll literally make a, a, a shoot sheet or a block it out on a map or something saying a.m., p.m. or midday. So I know that I can be out at a given spot in the afternoon for the good light or the morning for the good light or inside the mosque, for example, in midday, shooting from the inside of the mosque out and using that harsh midday light as a sort of overexposed background to create silhouettes, for example. So what do you do with those moments where you've done all that? You get to the location and you're just not getting into that, getting into that <laughs> zone. I think it's one of the most frustrating things that I can feel where I'm shooting. I'm going, this is not working. And it's, and it's one of the most frustrating things because part of me feels like I know there's something here and I'm not seeing it. I'm not getting it. So with all the planning in the world and with all the great light that could be around in the scene and all the wonderful potential subject matter, sometimes it's just something about that's going on inside of us. It's not allowing us to get through all that. Well, a couple of things. You know, I'm laughing with you, not at you, right? Because I was just giggling there as you <laughs> said that. Um, I would say maybe, I don't know, half of those times I really do discover that it's something that's going on with me and sometimes it's nothing more than, all right, I'm going to lose this hour. I'm going to go have a coffee. I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to slow down. I'm too tightly wound up about last night or something else like that. And then I'll come back not half an hour, an hour later and everything will be fine. I'll be back in gear. Um, sometimes, you know, if it's a job or something, I'll say, all right, I'm coming back tomorrow morning because I have that chance. And sometimes I, I think what you're looking for, and it's really true, sometimes you just throw your hands up and you just say, it is not happening today. It's not very often that I get to that last step, usually sort of recentering myself or making a, uh, going somewhere else and then coming back and making another run at it later. Nine times out of ten, that will suffice. But there have been a few where I've just – and I've been frustrated and said, you know, this is just not happening and I can't get it to work. So it may be time to call it a day. Well, you mentioned earlier your, your wife who I interviewed for the show a couple of months back. And she's a very different photographer. She's a fine art photographer. She uses herself as a uh, subject matter in a lot of her photographs. She does a lot of compositing with different, different things. So it's, you know, completely different from, from, from your work. I've interviewed photographers who, uh, who are married. More often than not, they're, they're doing similar types of photography, either the nature photography or travel photography. You guys are doing stuff that's very different. How is that a, a benefit as far as your respective creativity? I think she would back me up on this is that we probably would have more issues if we were doing the same thing because there's more of a potential for being competitive. Um, I mean my background is technically in the history of photography and I briefly flirted with being a fine art photographer but I didn't really have the personality um, to do that and actually her original goal was to become a photojournalist and go back to India and fight for, in, for women's rights in India and she didn't have the personality to be a photojournalist so I think that we both have a little bit of the other's passion and interest in the part of us that we may not have actualized. And then the other thing, of course, is we, we both do know what good photography is. We're capable of critiquing each other's work. Um, she's much more adept at digital stuff in general. Computer problems usually default to her helping me sort them out. I'm much more technologically adept at photography because I've been doing so long. So most of the photography, lighting, gear-related issues – um, if there's an issue, I'm usually the one that helps her sort it out. So it's pretty symbiotic. And though we have our moments, by and large, it really works pretty well. Yeah. Well, you've been using uh, the, the Micro Four Thirds systems 
Yes, uh, I'm using Olympus Micro Four Thirds cameras for a long time now, yeah. almost 10 years since I went digital. I mean, I've been using Olympus cameras since I went digital, Micro Four Thirds for about the last five years, yes. And, and I've written about and I've talked to a lot of people about how these smaller cameras are, have make, are making a difference, at least in my work. Um, because especially because of the size and the weight and, you know, for, for obvious reasons, but I'm curious to hear in terms of the work that you've been doing, how you find these, these smaller cameras with these interchangeable lenses sort of benefit you in the, in, in the way that you work. Oh, they are, I, I, I really, and I happen to be sort of what, this is one of those disclosures. I, I am sponsored by Olympus. I'm a legion, Olympus visionary, quote unquote. Um, I was using their gear before I got involved with them. And I use their gear because it solves my particular set of problems, not because they pay me. And my set of problems is I need to have a whole bunch of cameras, which are small, so I can get a bunch of them in a bag and I can travel. Um, I need to look inconspicuous. And the great thing about the little cameras is people generally treat me like I don't know what I'm doing. I need to have uh, maximum aperture, shallow depth of field, fixed focal length lenses, which they have a lot of which work really, really well in low light. I need to have two cameras, one on each side, so when I want to switch lenses, flashcards, or batteries, I just switch cameras. I don't actually have to stop what I'm doing. Um, they both have the folding attenuated screen, so I can put them in strange angles and get the compositions the way I want. And the attenuated folding screens are also good because when you're doing street photography, you can be looking at a scene and you can be composing it by looking down, but you're actually your eyes are going forward so people aren't necessarily clear what you're doing. And the other thing that I really love about the cameras is the toggle between the video and the still is just – it's just one button. You're just shooting stills and you hit an orange button. It becomes video. If you want to shoot a still, you go back to the shutter button. So there's not a lot of button switching to do to change from stills to video because I'm doing more and more a mix of both. And for me, they give me the file quality I need. Um, I just actually got a magazine story published about a week ago and they sent me – some copies of the magazine and I was on the cover and I was really excited both because I was on the cover, but also because they took a horizontal picture of mine. They cropped it roughly in half throughout the left and the right and made it into a vertical and it still looked great. And I was really excited about that. So for me, they've been a great problem solver and that's what a camera does. A camera solves your problem, whatever it is, you know, whether you're traveling or whether you're doing sports, if you need long lenses if you need to set up a lot of lights, a camera solves a problem. That's all the camera does. And for my given sets of problems, they work really well. Yeah. You mentioned being able to switch video. And one of the things that I really like are the videos that you've produced. Because I, I think that a lot of people, when they think about video, they think about all these, they have to invest on all these focusing rigs, all this equipment to build mm. around the camera, mm. and all they have to do all this sort of editing. And some of your videos are, are very are structured really simply. But... The imagery is so beautiful that it becomes really engaging, and they're and they're not very long. Talk about how that that development as part of what you what you do, and what is the appeal of of working with video and the way that you use it. Uh, let me this is a slightly long answer, but I'll do my best here. To go back to something you said a few minutes ago about the use of light and composition and framing, what I've discovered since I started shooting vis video, and people know this, but you really have to understand it, is that video by definition. You're not doing much in post. You basically have to get it right in camera in terms of light, angle, et cetera. So you can't go in there and quote-unquote Photoshop it. So the first thing about video that I learned over the last few years of doing it is to use the same discipline that I used to use for color slides to get the composition exactly right. Um, the next thing that I learned is to do a lot of really, really short clips. If you look, 95% of my 
videos are a series of 10 second or shorter clips chopped together and so that gives them a feeling of movement and energy. They also um, are generally done usually with, uh, as I said, fixed focus, large aperture lenses with minimal depth of field, which really concentrates the viewer's attention. And the thing I think that throws most people off when they think of video is that the video aesthetic that most people sort of default to is talking heads with a presumption that somebody has to sit there and be on camera. And if you think about video production, half of what goes on in video production is getting the talking head just right. And if you dump the requirement for a talking head and you just use ambient uh, sound and occasionally narration, because I, I do some narrations on my own videos, it opens up a whole world of possibilities where you don't need as many people. You don't be some, become so controlled by the need for that talking head. And so you can let the visuals rather than the narration of that talking head drive it because most video is driven by somebody talking about something and then the video cuts to that thing. And I don't, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in a video that's driven by the visuals and the narrative that unfolds right in front of my eyes. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're great. They really are inspiration for, me for the, to, when I remember to, to play around with that a little more because, Good. It, you know, I just don't take advantage of it as much as I do. I, I've been doing that a little more with, with the phone because mm, I go, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I got video on this thing, and I, I'll shoot some footage, and I find it's so much fun. And like you said, I just remember to bring all, that entire sensibility in terms of light and composition and framing and shape into them and make beautiful clips that include motion. That's exactly what, that's exactly what you want to do. And, and the thing that I talk about in my classes related to that is that there's a change of foot also in video as well. And I think the great video person of the future is going to have that same visual aesthetic. They're not going to be so obsessed about the talking head as putting together a frame that somebody looks at and says, wow, that really is a beautiful thing, or that's emotionally compelling, evocative, et cetera. Yeah. Well, my final question that I ask each guest is that I <laughs> recommend that they uh, ask that they recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and and explore and it can be anyone someone they've long admired or someone you've recently discovered so who would that one photographer be and why um the other photographer who when i was in college as i think i mentioned i studied the history of photography and i remember going through the books and looking at some w gene smith work when he was actually still alive when i started studying history of photography um i was stunned by his work but the other photographer whose work i found equally stunning was Harry Callahan. Oh, yes. And I think he kind of gets a short shrift. I don't think that the next generation kind of appreciates him in the same way that Gene Smith, who's a great photographer. But, I mean, if you're going to put a name up there for me, the two most influential photographers for me were um, Harry Callahan and W. Gene Smith. Yeah, I was just recently talking with Dan Winters about Harry Callahan's work. And it's just – if 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 you people who are listening to the show, if you've not checked it out yet, you've you got to do yourself a favor – and yeah. uh, go to the library or pick up one of his monographs from a bookstore because his 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 use of light, his use of light and shadow, shape, um, the moment is just wonderful. And and it, it can be even more appreciated when you think of the fact that he was shooting during, you know, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s when he didn't have the benefit of all this technology. And he was just out there with a the camera just making great photographs. He was, and the one thing I would say also for the people who may not be familiar with his work, unlike Gene Smith, he was actually not photographing in a documentary or a publication-oriented model. A lot of it was personal stuff. His wife is probably his most famous subject. Mm -hmm. And so for people who aren't necessarily interested in documentary or photojournalism, here's a photographer who has, as you said, great use of light and all those other things of what 
appear to be very sort of day-to-day stuff, but he treats them so exquisitely. Well, David, thank you so much for, uh, for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good day. Thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you're hearing, you can support this show in a variety of ways. You can donate any amount using PayPal. A link can be found on the Candid Frame website. Also, if you click on our affiliate links and make purchases through Amazon, B&H, or Adorama, you can also help us to continue to produce the best interview show on photography. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is provided by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available through incapatech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.